Miracle is a word that we use when what occurs is outside the realm of normal human possibility. In other words, it literally takes an act of God for a miracle to happen. And sometimes we use the word miracle in a way that isn't truly a miracle. For example, the miracle on ice, I loved it, not truly a miracle. The miracle in Michigan, if you're a big University of Colorado fan, you you know what that is, which none of you probably are, but it was a 70-yard Hail Mary pass with four seconds left on the clock to beat the number four team in the country at the time. And while that is impressive, it was not a miracle. It's not truly something that was outside normal human possibility. Now, the the word miracle is rightly ascribed to things that Jesus did. For example, when he healed someone or cast out a demon or raised someone from the dead, that was a miracle. Miracles still happen. There are healings that cannot be explained scientifically. You look at it and you go, there's no way that that happened on its own. It took an act of God for that to happen. And so uh, we often use the word miracle that way, and it's right when we use the miracle word miracle when we associate it with those acts. But sometimes we leave the word miracle out of an act that is truly a miracle. In other words, what happened only happened because God was moving behind it and it couldn't have happened any other way. Today we're going to be introduced to a miracle like that. Often it may not seem miraculous when it happens. In fact, on the outside, not much is is going on necessarily. It seems just like a person praying or just like a person talking to God, but that this act is no less of a miracle And that miracle is salvation. Not just Jesus on the cross for our sins, but the fact that anybody will put their faith in Jesus and follow Him is a miracle. It takes God drawing us to Him and opening our eyes to our need for a Savior. And without God doing that, it doesn't happen. Please read with me Mark 10, 17-27. Mark 10, 17 through 27. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? 
Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. This episode with the rich young man stands in direct contrast to what we read last week, which was that in order to receive the kingdom of God, we had to receive it like a child. This rich young man doesn't do anything here as like a child would. He comes, first of all, on his own. When we were reading last week, the children were being brought to Jesus. This man is able to come on his own. This man has his own money. He's wealthy, it says. If he wants food, he doesn't have to ask anybody for it. He buys it. If he wants clothes, he doesn't need to beg for it. He goes and he spends his own money. He's very unchildlike. He's self-sufficient. And he comes up to Jesus and he kneels down before him. And he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And from the outside, this looks really good, right? He comes down, he shows humility before Jesus, he bows down to him, he calls him good teacher, and even his question seems like a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But even that question shows a wrong attitude towards Jesus, and not a childlike attitude. He's saying what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This passage immediately follows what Jesus has just taught about eternal life. And so just juxtapose right there. You have the child who Jesus brings to him versus this man who comes up to him and is trying to approach him in his own way and with his own strength and on his own righteousness as opposed to a child who comes to Jesus totally dependent on Jesus. And so even though it does again have that outward appearance of being a really good start to this conversation, Jesus is looking at the heart of this young man. And he's going to get a problem in his heart that the young man doesn't even realize he has yet. First off, Jesus says, says to him, "Why do you call me good?" He says, "No one is good but God alone." Now, Jesus is not sitting here denying his divinity in this case. What he's trying to get the young man to do is realize who he is. He's trying to get the young man to realize that he's coming to Jesus and he's coming to him as what? God. And he's trying to get him to realize that because he's about to ask him to do something that's very difficult. It would be very difficult for any of us to do. But Jesus says what? He says, you know the commandments, right? You know the commandments. What do they say? And so he lists off all these commandments. He says, what? You shall not lie. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. Honor your mother and father. He says to the young man, you know what it says. And the young man at this point is probably starting to be pretty happy with himself, right? He's like, I've kept all of those since my youth. You see there the young man's attitude. He is self-righteous. He is relying on his wealth and his good works to justify himself. I'm sure he's expecting to say, Jesus to say to him, you know what, kid, you're right. Welcome to the club. You're in. You've done all the right things. You've said all the right things. You're a good guy. You already have eternal life. You're there. But that's not what Jesus says to him at all. In fact, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And then he has to correct him. 
say, no, there's something you're still lacking here. He's like, you, you might do all those things, but you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor and then follow me. Now, Jesus is in no way calling for all of us to sell everything and anybody who is going to become a Christian. You do not have to sell your house and your car and all your clothes and everything in order to follow Jesus. What Jesus is doing here is getting at the heart of the matter with this young man. And that is that this young man's faith is ultimately not in God. If you notice, when he lists all those commandments, he leaves out all of the commandments that have to do with how this young man should approach God. He brings in all the commandments about loving your neighbor, but leaves out all the commandments about loving God. And the young man doesn't even pick up on it. Did you notice that? Jesus left him out. The young man says, hey, I've kept all those. But he doesn't add, oh, and those other four that you left out, I've kept them too. No, he left out the ones that you shall have no other God before me. He left out, you shall not make an idol and worship it. He left out, you should not take the Lord's name in vain. He left out, you must obey, uh, keep the Sabbath holy. He left all those out, all of those that are a direct, uh, that direct how we are to approach God, Jesus doesn't mention. And the young man never brings it up. Jesus is pointing to a glaring problem in this young man's life. And that is that he trusts his wealth ultimately and he trusts his good works but he does not trust God he is not honoring and serving God first and therefore everything that comes after really doesn't matter because none of those things bring us to salvation it's sort of like this I'm a a big hockey fan uh, and there's a rule called offside And, and with offsides the puck has to enter the offensive zone before any of the offensive players do. Otherwise, whatever happens after that really doesn't matter. You can make a great move. You can juke the goalie right out of his pads and put a perfect shot top shelf, and it doesn't matter if you didn't come into the play onside. This happened to the Bruins last year in a playoff game. Unfortunately, they went on to lose the game because of it. But it was a beautiful goal. It, it happened just the way you would draw it up. You know, a, a nice pass to the defenseman. He takes a huge shot. You've got a guy running in f- interference in front of the goalie so the goalie can't see it. He redirects the shot. It goes in. The Bruins are celebrating. But the goal gets called back because the Bruins came into the zone offside. They forgot to do what was most important first, and they start focusing on what they did afterwards and not realizing that it doesn't matter because you broke the first rule. And so this is a a big sticking point with people in our society. They look at people, uh, at Christians, and go, how could you say someone as good as whoever it is? You know, pick your really nice celebrity or your awesome philosopher, whoever it might be, and they say, Look at how much good that person has done. How could you say they're not going to heaven? How could you say that? Because the problem is, they are missing the first thing. They are missing what Jesus summed up. He said the greatest commandment was that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And those people are missing that. And so what they do afterwards doesn't do any good for salvation. Because they're missing Jesus. They're missing God. 
And it is only through Him that we have salvation. And it all has to start there with placing our faith in God the Son, Jesus, His death on the cross for the payment for our sins. And that's the only way we can be forgiven. And so anything that we do after that, if we're trying to justify ourselves that way, it's all just self-righteousness and not being made righteous by God. Jesus knows that this is the case with the rich young man. And because he loves him, he calls him to give up what he has functionally made his God. He probably doesn't literally sit there and pray to his wealth, but his wealth is what he serves. His wealth is what he trusts in. It has become his God. And so Jesus has the hard conversation that he has to have with this young man. He loves him and he tells him what he's got to do. How many people do we have in our own life who we need to look at like Jesus looked at this young man and love them and have that hard conversation with them. Because they're going about their lives, and sure, their lives look good. From the outside, they look great, but their faith isn't in Jesus. Their faith is in other things. Whether it be their career, their money, science, whatever it happens to be, their faith is in something other than God, and therefore, they will not inherit eternal life. In order to have those conversations with people, we have to look at them like Jesus looked at this young man, with love. Because it's going to take us loving them more than we love ourselves to have those conversations, because people tend to react strongly to the gospel, either in a good way or a bad way. And it's scary to be rejected. It hurts to be rejected. And that's definitely a possibility when we share the gospel. In fact, as we read here, This man rejects what Jesus is telling him. And he walks the other way, saddened, because he had so much wealth. Now Jesus recognizes that this man had a lot to give up from a worldly standpoint. He says how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Because it's easy for us to worship our wealth. It's easy for us to trust in our wealth because it's there, it's here, it's in front of us. We see it immediately. We don't always see God working immediately, right? Faith takes a trust in what we cannot see. And so Jesus admits it is hard for someone with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And that saying drew a a shocked response from the disciples. Uh, Certainly some of the disciples, we we don't know about all of them, but they weren't all poor before they knew Jesus. You know, we often think of the disciples as being poor because generally after they, they start following Jesus, they do give up everything and they are poor. But beforehand, that's not necessarily the case. Matthew, for example, is a tax collector. Those guys were known for making money. And he had the money to throw a big banquet for Jesus. So certainly Matthew would have had money. Uh, James and John's father owned a boat and his fishing business was big enough he had hired men. So even if he wasn't super rich, he, he certainly had more than a lot of people. See, so what Jesus is saying there is, is a little shocking to them, not to mention other people who were following Jesus and supporting his ministry and the disciples at this time 
were rich. They came from well-known households in Jerusalem. And they supported them with their money. And so hearing this is rather shocking to the disciples. But Jesus isn't joking when he says it. And we know this because he says it again. And he he uses a bit of hyperbole to drive the point home. He says, it will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person, a wealthy person, to get into heaven. It tells us the disciples' response to that is they were exceedingly astonished now so they were surprised the first time you ever see someone like they say something kind of crazy the first time and you're kind of shocked and they get the chance to back down from it but instead of backing down from it they double down on it and you're like whoa you you're serious about what you just said all right and that's what the disciples are doing they're like whoa jesus was serious like what is he saying because it's starting to dawn on them how difficult it truly is for someone to be saved. And in fact, at this point, they're like, who? Who can be saved then? That's the question they're asking Jesus. If it is difficult for someone with wealth who can live a good life, like this young man clearly did, if, it is difficult, if it's difficult for him to come into the kingdom of God, then who can come into the kingdom of God? And Jesus bluntly tells them, with man, this is impossible. It's impossible with man. They could not do it on their own. In other words, human ingenuity, human striving, human work ethic, whatever a man does, it doesn't matter. With men, it's impossible for someone to come to salvation. They can't do it. Now, can you imagine the bad news if Jesus had just ended the sentence there? You're right, guys, with man, it's impossible. Done. His disciples would have started panicking pretty early on. They were very reactionary anyway. They're already nervous. But thankfully, he doesn't end the sentence there. He says, but not with God. It is possible with God. In fact, all things are possible with God. And that is beautiful news for us. It's glorious news for us. Because honestly... Most of us are rich, especially by this standard, by the standard of the day we're talking about here. We're actually very rich. We woke up this morning in homes that we know we're going to be able to go back to tonight. You know, homes that didn't leak in the nor'easter that just came through. We all stayed dry. Or if you didn't, please tell me why not. Let's, let's help you out. But I haven't heard of anybody who was wanting for shelter during the storm. You know, a lot of us have steady jobs that pay well. We don't have to worry about if we're going to make mortgage or the rent next month or if we're going to be able to put food on our tables. Now, I'm not saying that things aren't tight, but I'm saying we're, we're in a pretty secure situation. We know where all these things are coming from. And that truly makes us rich. A lot of people in the world would love to be in our shoes where that's the case. Now, I know, again, we, I'm not downplaying that we work hard for that and that we should enjoy it and be thankful for where we are. But the fact remains that we're, we're rich. We're rich enough that we could be like this young man and say, you know what, I'm pretty self-sufficient. I don't need for things. There might be things I want, but I don't need for things. And I'm a pretty good person. 
I don't murder. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not, you know, lying. I honor my mother and father. We could look at ourselves and say, hey, we could be like this young man and be self-sufficient. And it would be impossible for us to save ourselves because when we're self-sufficient like that, we don't have a need for God. Why should we? We do everything ourselves. I have to admit, I was a lot like that rich young man before I came to faith in Jesus. But I wasn't able to come to faith in Jesus until God opened my eyes. He had to break me down and show me my heart and where it was. He had to open my eyes to see that I still needed a Savior. And that was a miracle that He did it. He had to intervene in my life. And He had to intervene in your life for you to come to faith in Jesus. We needed God to move on our behalf, and He did. So this is wonderful, wonderful news for us. But this is also wonderful news for those around us, because let's look at the towns we live in. We live in towns like Wakefield, and Melrose, and Peabody, and Saugus, and Beverly, and even Lynn. Lynn kind of gets looked on as this poor town, but Lynn by a lot of standards, is a wealthy town. Right? People, like, I lived there for three years. We owned our house. We had cars. We had food. We had all those things, and so did the vast majority of our neighbors. Those things were all there. These towns are full of people who are rich. And it is impossible for them to come to faith on their own. You ever look at their lives and go, there's no way that person's ever going to come to faith in Jesus. They're too comfortable. They've got everything they need. They're self-sufficient. And from a human standpoint, from a natural standpoint, that's right. They are. They will never come to faith on their own because they are in their own mind and from their limited perspective, they are self-sufficient. And they don't see their need for a Savior. They need God to move on their behalf. They need the Holy Spirit to open their eyes and to soften their heart so that the gospel has good soil to be planted in. Because they're not going to do it on their own. But the good news is is that with God, it is possible. No matter how wealthy they are, no matter how many good things it looks like they have going on in their lives, it's still possible (coughs) for your neighbor, your co-worker, your boss, your parents, whoever it might be, it is still possible for them to come to faith in Jesus, not because they themselves can do it, but because God can do it. I'm going to bring up the Philadelphia Eagles, which I realize is a dangerous thing, only being a month removed from them beating the Patriots in the Super Bowl. But I want to bring them up because God is doing some amazing things on their team. And i got to be honest, it softened the blow a little bit when the Patriots lost, knowing all these things that are going on. But if, if you haven't heard about the Eagles, they, there's a lot of people on the team who are Christians. And not just like, you know, a guy here or a guy there, but we're talking Nick Foles, the quarterback who led them to the Super Bowl. Carson Wentz, their starting quarterback, who went down to injury early in the year. Their coach, Doug Peterson. All those men are strong men of faith. And they have been leading their team in Bible studies, in prayer. They've been evangelizing to their teammates. They've been telling them the good news of Jesus. Now, by any standards, these guys are rich. They've got it all going for them. 
They are in prime physical condition in the prime time of their lives, making at the minimum hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, if not millions of dollars a year. Like, these guys are the rich of the rich. They are way up there when it comes to money. And if anyone could trust in themselves, these guys who are bench pressing 450 pounds and making all this money, they should be trusting in themselves, we would say. Did you know that many of their teammates through these Bible studies and through their prayers have been coming to faith in Jesus? They've literally had baptisms in hotels while they're on road trips. They've baptized guys in the ice tubs in their locker room. Like, that's amazing. I say that. That's incredible because these guys are rich. Like I said, if anybody, if you expect anybody to be like, I'm totally self-sufficient, it's these guys. And yet God is working in their lives and showing them that they need Jesus and they are responding in faith. And that is not possible from a natural standpoint. That only happens because God, the Holy Spirit, is moving in their lives. So that should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to rejoice because there is hope that way for our neighbors. There is hope for anyone, and there is hope for us. Let us rejoice in what God has done for us, that no other person could do for us, not even ourselves. Our money couldn't do it. Our strength couldn't do it. Our intellect couldn't do it. No, God the Holy Spirit had to do it for us. And He did, and He will do it for others. He has saved us. He sent His Son Jesus to die on the cross for us, taking away our sin, and His Spirit has moved in our lives, opening our hearts up to receive Jesus, to place our faith in Him. Let's glorify God for that. Let's sing our praises to Him because of that. And let's share that beautiful news with those around us. And let's see God move in their lives just as He moved in ours so that they can join with us in heaven and even on earth now, praising God and glorifying Him.